Welcome to the Smart Nonsense Podcast, where we talk about entrepreneurship, self-development, and challenging norms. Today, it's episode 61, and we are talking with the hottest new kid on the online block. This person has amassed, in the last four months, keep in mind, four months, this whole quarantine period, he's gotten 6,000 avid Twitter followers, almost 3,000 email subscribers, several thousand downloads on his podcast. I mean, he's just crushing it. And you can see this by the people he's, the caliber of the people he's getting on his podcast, like David Perel, he's getting James Clear, The Pomp, Ali Abdal, maybe you've heard of a couple of them. <laughs> They're massive on the online sphere. So I ask this person, I'll just tell you his name, Brandon Jung. I asked Brandon how he's been able to hack this online community building process, his suggestions for everyone, how you can find a mentor online like he has right now with Jack Butcher at Visualize Value, and really how he finds the work-life balance. Because he's putting out so much content, I almost can't even fathom it still. So we get into all of it. It's awesome. If you want to find Brandon online, you can find him on his website, Brandon Zhang. That's Z-H-A-N-G.com. Also, his podcast is at brandonjong.com slash podcast. I'm excited for your listen. I did this just to learn myself. It's fascinating what he's been able to do, and he's only going to keep growing with the months to come. So check him out and then leave a review for us, please. That's going to help us grow. I'm excited. I want to do the same that Brandon is doing right now. So listen here. You can also do it. This is episode 61 with Brandon Jong. This is awesome seeing you face-to-face. I've watched a couple of your videos from the podcast on YouTube, but uh, you've done some insane stuff so far. Um, And now you're coming into college, so I'm sure there's a lot on your plate and uh, it's got to be crazy. But usually we, we start from the beginning, like what got Brandon to where you are today? Um, and so is it, it's true you grew up in Beijing going to an international school. Like what was that like growing up? Yeah. So I I'm a U.S. citizen. First of all, my parents were were both living here, but just like kind of how it turned out, um, we, I was born in Beijing and I spent the first 10 or so years there. And I think for me, like a lot of people talk about it, but I feel like growing up in another country and, and, and being familiar with, with how they operate is, and like knowing a, a different language, right, is a big, big um, game changer in terms of, I think it, it gives you just two, uh, like another set of reference points, another um, mindset or, or way to think at things. So I'm really grateful that I was able to have that experience growing up. I still have a lot of friends there and I, I am very appreciative of that experience. And it's still a very close part of my my life in, in a sense. That's what was so cool to me because you have, I, I guess, several uh, mental kind of models with languages in your head because you you do know some Arabic too. You were in Morocco. I heard a little bit about that. Uh, language is yeah. fascinating to me. I'm I'm pretty competent with Spanish, but you you see the world in a different way. Like especially interacting with those cultures. Actually, yesterday I was just talking to this uh, Mexican woman and like. It's funny just the way that they'll go about like calling friends fat. It's just like really casual thing, whereas other cultures is completely <laughs> different. So it's uh, really being immersed in the culture with the language. I think it opens your eyes. Is Yeah, yeah. I talked with, with Polina on, on, right. on that episode about like how kind of what language you think in or what language you operate in um, can, can almost switch based on what context you're in. I think 
like you said, I'm still, I'm pretty new at Arabic. So I, I, I don't, I definitely don't think in that language, but I think for the difference between like Chinese and English is that a lot of times if you're thinking like in, I mean, at least for me growing up, like whenever I did anything that was like counting or math related, it was very much kind of, um, in Chinese just cause like in a sense, like the language, the language for numbers made more sense. Um, you know, where English has like 11 and 12, um, which is kind of random in a sense, right? Instead of like 21 or 22. Mm. Um, so just small things like that is, is pretty interesting to notice. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, well, one, <laughs> I feel like a lot of people must mispronounce your name too, just coming to America, the amount of mm-hmm. zangs you must get or, uh, however it is that's yeah. got to be infuriating but um it is it is cool like we were in beijing briefly for spring break in college and uh just seeing the way people interact is completely different like i'm someone who's pretty like i'm hispanic so kind of touchy uh feely. like even with strangers like I, I went to do like a high five to someone and they they like got scared out of their mind uh, <laughs> so it's just different navigating the uh no for sure <laughs> it's like very startling for them um, mm-hmm. culturally, I guess you went to an international school there. So did you, did that have a good mix or were like, what was that like compared to maybe going to uh, a school just like a normal Chinese student would? Yeah, I think it's definitely basically if you took like American public school and kind of, kind of plopped it in, um, another country, I think also what's different is there's a lot more diversity in terms of there was a lot of kids from embassies or kids from a lot of different countries. Um, I know a lot of American universities and American high schools sometimes like, like to talk about like the diversity that, um, the students are coming from, but truly like going to an international school, it's a very, very different experience in, in that sense. Yeah. That was the beauty. Cause I, I went to a public school in Rhode Island. So just, mm-hmm. uh, nothing nothing other than like white people <laughs> and like i was the closest <laughs> to hispanic person there and then going to brown in my case like it completely opened my eyes to other cultures right so i guess you've you've gotten some decent exposure um to that and and even more now like right now are you you're at home but you're taking online classes like what is your school situation yeah so i'm at home in california and taking online classes so it's my first year in college so it's it's definitely been a little tough in terms of like getting to know people i'm lucky in the fact that i went to high school where um, i know a couple kids that are, are, are going to columbia with me so it's not as completely like a fresh slate um but yeah it's been an interesting experience studying from home um but I think it for me, I've, I've almost been enjoying it more because I have time to, to do things like record my own podcast, do things like, uh, work my part time, um, uh, mentorship with Visualize Value. So doing that has been, has been very rewarding for me. Yeah. I remember because I was, we've, we've had a couple current students on the podcast before and just playing with this question of should you go to school? I know you had a post about it. Mm-hmm. But it was tricky and you kind of saw the tail half of your high school experience was uh, online school basically and you know, right. a lot of failings there. But you still decided to go um, yeah, mostly for the the social value and also to kind of direct you in life. But do yeah. you think, yeah, is there something I'm missing there? 
Yeah, I also think that for me, it was just like, what is the alternative? Is the alternative like, because a lot of times if, if you were to evaluate the merits of a gap year, right, the merits would be doing another experience that would probably be outside of this country or, uh, if within this country, you'd want to like be able to work somewhere that you're not typically in or travel somewhere you're not typically going to. And the options for that was just so drastically limited that is it like, would I just drop out and do the podcast full time? Would I drop out to like, I just didn't see any merit to doing it full time because I feel like I could do both just as well while um, being able to go to college. And like you said, leveraging some of, some of those factors, like I, everyone was like, Oh, you should um, look for alternatives. But to be honest, like evaluating the alternatives given the same circumstances is also, there's not much that, that presented itself. And I thought that it was, it was the best decision for me personally. Obviously it might be different for different people. If you have like a very clear idea of something you might want to work on or might want to build during this time, like obviously it would be a good decision to make. And I think another aspect of, of, of my decision was that I realized, right. One of the advantages in a sense of doing this online is that I, over the summer, I've spent so much time um, connecting with different people on Twitter that that could be kind of the network I also I, I could leverage and, and use instead in a sense. And yeah, it, for me, it just made the perfect sense to continue pursuing that path and um, go in that direction. So you're saying Twitter, using it to complement school or? Yeah, basically using the people... Uh, that I talk with on the podcast or people that uh, kind of reach out to just um, ask me how, like what my journey has been like and things like that. And me reaching out as well, right? I feel like if you want to get the best out of the people on Twitter, you have to be very proactive in terms of reaching out and trying to learn from those people, um, kind of seeing it basically as um, your way of, of networking and making friends. That's what was so crazy to me. One, the fact that you only started like four months ago on, on Twitter, right? That was your first foray into the, the Twitterverse or were yeah. you thinking about it before and you experimented or this was like starting from scratch right then? Yeah. I mean, obviously I had a Twitter account before, but I'd follow people like Woj, like Adam Schefter. Like I wasn't really into like this side of Twitter. Um, a lot of the people that were actually using it to spread like interesting thoughts, interesting uh, messages in that sense, um, kind of different analysis on different areas. Yeah. So four months ago was kind of when I first um, decided to kind of start following these people and, and, and putting out some of my own, own ideas as well. Yeah. That's where for me, I always heard the argument with college was like, all right, sure. You're spending a lot of money, but the relationships you build are, are great. And, lifelong. And then you see on Twitter, it's kind of like a, a hack. Maybe it's not as personal per se, but you're getting access to people that, that are even greater, even out of Columbia. There's some people on Twitter that you normally wouldn't be able to reach. So there it's, it's interesting. I guess you have the two running simultaneously. So you get the best of both worlds in that sense. Um, yeah. And we definitely have to go deep on Twitter, but while we're still talking about school, what, what was like the first, I don't know, I guess three, four weeks. I don't know when the semester exactly started, but what's your impression so far of how online college is doing? 
Yeah, I think for me, it, it depends on, on how you how you go and go about setting it up for yourself, right? If you're just going to not select the classes where the professors are best at online teaching, if you're not going to go out and reach out to different people and be like, okay, let's talk, let's start talking, let's get on a call and get to know one another, let's do homework together. If you're not proactively doing that, obviously the experience is going to suck, right? Um, so in a sense... I'm, I'm lucky that I'm not super, super introverted in that sense. And I, I feel relatively okay reaching out to different people and being like, hey, let's talk for a bit or I'd love to learn more, um, kind of like following up on different intros like that. Obviously, sometimes it could be seen as, as weird and obviously it, it is a tough balance to put that together. But I think it's it's very much up to you, I think, like, you have to like obviously like right now more than ever i feel like the professor makes the class um it doesn't kind of really matter like i mean obviously it matters what the content of the class is but how your professor is able to teach over zoom is really really different from what they might be able to do in a lecture and probably advice would be to uh lean on classes that that have either smaller sizes or have a lot of tas because it is hard to to not feel lost at at the very start when it's when it's all online. Yeah, that's where I'm thinking. One TAs are probably more tech savvy than your average professor, so uh, a lot of TAs is good. And uh, it's interesting because you have some of the the best in the world at online courses and teaching, and you've taken a couple of the classes, like a David Perel or Jack Butcher. Now, what's do you think they should start implementing some of the, maybe the models? Like, uh, I don't know, would you approach what they're doing differently? Like, should professors be almost doing like interviews, like bringing on some experts in their field or, cause I've been playing around with how I'd restructure college and some of the best classes where a professor would bring in one of their friends who's in whatever industry it is. Um, I think that's an interesting avenue, but would you make any tweaks to how they're teaching? Yeah, I'm I'm also still kind of like trying to gather that information. But yeah, I would agree that that model has has its benefits. One thing at Columbia, we have um, Frontiers of Science freshman year that, that every freshman takes. And that model is a really different take on science. I'm not a super sciencey person myself, so I'm, I'm glad for that in that matter. And it's basically like four general units. And each unit is taught by a different professor that is very, very much so at the top of their field. And not, not, not even that, but it's very much like casual conversation in terms of, I feel like it's almost like someone's interviewing them. We have a Q&A with them every week, which is moderated by kind of the uh, actual professor of the entire course. But having that kind of like, like you said, conversational um, ability uh, does make it um, different in, in, in that sense. But I'd say it really depends on the course and depends on the class size. I think that certain models are, are, should definitely stay, um, as it is like a lot of the, I feel like the discussion models for smaller classes, uh, do, do pretty well over zoom. Um, and I think that it's very, very different, like what rite of passage does with, to what a traditional college experience does, because I feel like rite of passage, it's, very specifically, everyone came to take that one singular course and one singular instructor. And everyone, I, college is at a steep price, but that price, like you said, college is a really big bundle with a ton of different things. 
And whereas Rite of Passage, you're paying solely that price just to do that one singular course. So I think if there's there's a level of, of difference there that, that uh, is often hard to translate. Yeah, I've heard uh, Isaac Morehouse who talks about the unbundling of colleges. I forget who it is, but there's there's a lot of different different approaches to how to restructure all of education. That's why it's cool that you've, you've just had all these different experiences. And for someone like right now, are you 18? I'm 19. 19. Okay. So literally in your teens, like insane, the amount of just content that you're observing and then pushing back to the world. Where did this like drive come from? Because I, I needed college basically to see other people pressuring me to do just interesting things, put my voice out there. But was it more internal for you? Did you get it from maybe the right of passage groups and stuff like that? Where did that come from? Yeah, I think for me, uh, just one quick point on on the unbundling of college. I think Eric Tornberg, he's the founder of OnDeck. I think he talks about it a lot. And I think what he's doing at OnDeck is really great um, in terms of unbundling certain parts of the college experience. And, and I feel like his analysis and understanding of like the education industry is, is very strong. So I'd encourage everyone to, to go look at his work and, and what he's doing on deck. But for me, I'd say the catalyst of, of what, um, why I started doing this, I guess, like in terms of drive, I went to a boarding school on the East coast that was very much really preppy. It was, um, very much like a competitive environment. So I'd say part of that comes from there. Um, but to be honest, like that was kind of just a very traditional path, right? It was boarding school, college, um, into the workforce. But I think what, what pushed me to, to start doing this stuff over the summer was honestly just seeing that there wasn't really much of an alternative, right? We were all kind of home anyways, right? Quarantining and doing that. So I was like, try to make the most out of this, right? You have, you have, the opportunity to to really explore um, a cool area here. I think that it was a it was kind of like a perfect timing in terms of me exp- uh, being able to opening up to the space, but also um, what was happening in the environment around us. Have you heard of Nick Kakonis? No. He he was on a Tim Ferriss episode that's where I first heard of him, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm forgetting the name of his group. But he owns some of the best restaurants in the world. And restaurants are some of the most, basically the hardest hit industries out there. And he's like, you can neither have two mentalities. One is the victim and one is the person that comes and seizes it the day. Yeah. And so you, you know, we're all dealt these cards if you can't go out. Some people like you will take amazing courses, really double down on Twitter and just ways of networking despite the, the lack of traditional social interaction. I think that's, that's so fundamental. And maybe I guess it's, your friends are doing it as well. You have some internal drive that pushes you to not take the victim mentality route. Yeah. I actually had no friends that were doing it at the time. I was kind of like, oh, really? I chanced upon right, right of passage just by myself. And I think that I came out of right of passage with a lot more friends on Twitter. I have one friend, Robbie Crabtree that I've never met before, but we're, we're pretty close and we write together um, a lot of the weekdays where we just get on a call and, and write. Um, he's a lawyer and he he's launching his new course, Performative Speaking, which is modeled after Rite of Passage. But instead of taking you through writing, it's a high ticket course that, that teaches you how to craft a story. And so 
yeah, I think that's just an example of, of right? Like showing you the, the level of connection that you can make over Twitter and, and that there is like, right, almost a level of a social network there. I know, Robbie, I've actually talked to him a couple of times. One of my favorite courses in college was persuasive communication. And there's mm. a lot of what Robbie's been teaching, but it's, it's fascinating because yeah. few people know how to tell their story well or do it in a uh, persuasive way. And that's why I just love how you can have these niches that, you know, they specialize like the unbundling. Uh, you have David Perel write a passage focused on that. You have Jack Butcher. He had his uh, well, multiple courses now, but just visualizing ideas, how to convey value, all these amazing different areas and they can copy their models too. Do you see, I know you mentioned like there wasn't a great alternative and you couldn't see yourself necessarily doing this like 10 hours a day straight. Um, do you see yourself maybe one day having your own sort of course? It could even be for like Twitter growth hacking or, or whatever it might be. Is that something in the back of your mind? Yeah, I think it's it's come to my head a couple of times. I've, I've played around with a couple of ideas. I think like work, being able to work with Jack, I think I, I've seen like the level of experience and um, kind of how much he put into putting that course together for it to be successful. So I really, really don't want to rush it. I think that the number one mistake you see is a lot of people are just trying to, to monetize too quickly. I think Tim Ferriss has an amazing quote where he talks about, he could have started monetizing his podcast really, really early on, but he kind of went through the steps and showed us like, showed uh, the audience, like the um, kind of growth that would have capped off versus like, if like what he actually did and just left it unmonetized for a while. And I think like that is, that is a lesson in of itself. I'm one of, I've played around with a couple ideas that I think could be cool areas in the future. I think that one idea I've been playing around with is this idea of the per permissionless apprentice. I think that's a really interesting model. It's kind of how I began to work with Jack in the first place. And now it's kind of like a, uh, an actual working relationship that we have. And I think that a lot of people can benefit from it. Right. I feel like if you, if you, uh, it's almost like if something like this existed for me, I could have seen that as an, as an alternative, right? Because if you're teaching uh, different people to, to go out there and seek um, kind of the perfect mentor fit with them and, and really be able to create a relationship where they're um, producing their own uh, projects and, 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 and uh, work um, through that, I think that would be a really valuable experience, but very much so um I think that's something down the future where I um, kind of put, uh, have more experience in, in this area and have more experience with this myself. So I think that it is something I'd, I'd want to consider in the future. Yeah, I, I think that was my, my first job. I actually kind of did it in college as well. I was a YouTuber and he had several hundred thousand followers and he had his own course that sold millions of dollars worth of revenue. And it was just mind blowing to see what's possible um, when you do it right. And it, it all came down to, in my case, a cold email. I know you're a fan even more of the, the DM on Twitter. Um, yeah. Is that like pillar wise, would you say usually having a portfolio, which is why Twitter's nice. Um, is it like have a little portfolio offer value? Like what are some of the core pillars of, of your model? Yeah, I would say, basically don't ask for anything in return too early, right? Like that's the permissionless part, right? Like you're doing it, 
you're doing it without their permission, but you're also not looking for anything in return at the start, right? It should be work that is is positive sum that helps you as much as it helps them. And then they'll be appreciative of kind of what you've done for them. And then you can kind of reach out and say like, here are some things that I would want to help you work on. And, or here are some things that I think could benefit you. And that is kind of like the general strategy, right? Like you have to be able to um, kind of double down and say like, I would just do this. I would be doing this anyways. So I I shouldn't expect anything in return at, at the start. So I think doing that is, is there is a power in that. Right. That was, I mean, for me, I, I offered to work for free for an entire summer, like just kind of going out of my way and I didn't care. I was down to sleep in New York on the ground. Uh, mm-hmm. It was just working with that person. What has working so far apprenticing under Jack been like, what it oh, just, what is he like as a person to work with? What have you learned maybe? Yeah. So visualize value in itself was a small team. Even before I joined, it was just Jack and his wife. And I think that's what makes it really beneficial for me in terms of Jack really lets me be pretty independent with, with some of the work I do. Um, I just kind of pitch him a couple of ideas. He's like, Oh, I like this one. We can work to tweak this one. But then most of the time it's just up for me to uh, kind of figure it out, um, get the stuff done and, and report back to him. And so in that sense, it's been uh, very rewarding, but I think also it's, it's less of just like me strictly working for him. I'm also learning from him uh, a lot as well. He, he walks me through a lot of how he works with his clients, how he um, structures his courses, how he's able to uh, like, what are some of his future plans and, and how that kind of all fits in. And really, I think the great thing is that because um, I had that relationship with the, him at the start where it was like, I had him on the podcast. I kind of showed him what I was capable of. He was very much open to like sharing his stuff with me. And he, he listens to some of the feedback I give in a sense. So um, it has really been a, a, a great experience. Yeah, I know. I mean, one in general, your your content is clean and it, it just looks good. I'm sure some of that came from Jack. Uh, Thanks. I mean, I, I'm... I don't know. My mind, maybe I have to take his course to fully understand just how to think so simply and clearly and, and do it. But I'm a big art fan. Like I have my own little email and I'll draw some stick figures to represent ideas and stuff. And it's, it's fun and such a underutilized or used way of representing information. Um, is your, I guess right now with Jack, the model is basically his courses and then plus he, he sells some of his consulting services. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's, that's one of the general viable routes that people go. So um, as a premium community, which is um, kind of like an area I help with as well. I think that's another really strong part of a visualized value, right? Because there's that community of people that really commit to the same message. Um, It is like, you can see that through Twitter, through, everywhere that that there is kind of like a a a sizable portion of people that that really believe in that yeah that was that's traditionally like with our company the youtube company it was basically just videos like good quality videos but the community was basically a facebook group that kind of ran on its own so i think having more of an emphasis on how to make a good quality group i know circle that's uh something i haven't used before but sounds like that's a, a new wave of people interacting and building that community. Um, has yeah. that worked well so far with 
we the community building. Yeah. Uh, for the visualized value one, we run it on Slack and, and mighty networks. It's a combination of the two. And I think circle is, is pivoting. Well, I, uh, I was read a passage use circle. So I'm familiar with it from that sphere. I think the direct messaging capabilities on Slack is still kind of why we use it for visualized value, but circle is a great kind of like headquarters to have for, for people. It's just that it's, I guess like one-on-one and group, it doesn't even have group chats yet, which is kind of uh, difficult to coordinate things. Um, but other than that, it is, it is very cool platform to use. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. I love how quickly everything's adapting. I know I just got onto notion and then I learned of Rome and I'm like, Oh damn it. There's another app that's uh, changing the game. All right. Here's what I've been playing with. And I feel like there are a lot of these different tools out there, uh, I guess in the productivity world right now Mm -hmm. like are you always trying to improve or do you think it's just like get to 80 percent with one tool and run with that or like what is your approach because there's so much out there to really use yeah i think it's it's okay to be using different tools as long as you're using them in in a sense of like in in a level of consistency and to their strengths right i feel like i use notion to work with jack for team management and project management stuff and i feel like that's the great thing about notion right it's basically replacing google docs replacing asana all in one place it's very aesthetic very easy to organize large amounts of material so for that um for team kind of collaboration i feel like notion is notion is great but I use Rome for, for personal notes and things like that, writing my newsletter, preparing for the podcast. And I think that Rome, it, it takes a certain level of thinker or a different, a certain level of person to use it because you do have to really think kind of like interconnectedly. You have to be very um, kind of proactive with your backlinks and, and tags because the, the power of, of Rome only shows through if you can surface stuff really quickly. And if you can use the app to connect ideas, you normally wouldn't have been able to see in, in other apps, right? Like in an Evernote, if you're reading an article on two different related topics, but maybe one paragraph of each are, can be tied together you, it's really hard for to, for you to see that. But if you have the same backlink in Rome for those two, you can combine that. And that can be a really interesting and even original take if you do that. And I feel like a lot of people try and use Rome, but they just use it as a normal note-taking app if you're just like kind of copying and pasting highlights in and not adding any backlinks, adding any tags. It's basically the same thing as a Google Doc or, or Evernote page, right? You have to use its features. I think that's the one thing that I would say, right? Like, not, not Rome is not perfect for everyone. Notion is not perfect for everyone. Evernote is not perfect for everyone. But just find one that is perfect for you and stick to it. Don't just get caught with the shiny new toy and, and try and test it, even though it might not work for you. Right, yeah, if it's used properly, then it's it's incredible. But if, if you're just using it like an Evernote, in, in theory, just copying and pasting, it makes no sense. I know David Perel is big on having, I forget the term he uses, but having this basically a database of content. So you're never starting from scratch. Yeah, Is that why you've been so prodigious? Because it, or just, uh, I should say like putting out so much content because it seems like it's just content after amazing content after amazing content. Does it come from that process? Yeah, I think that it's it is part inspired by by David and he calls it kind of like personal knowledge management and he has another term like hot and cold notebooks like hot are ideas that are top of mind cold are ideas that 
um, you just think are cool, but uh, save them for later. I think like Rome has also really changed the game for me in terms of like, I have an integration between Readwise and Rome now. So whenever I read something new, whenever I make highlights, it automatically syncs to Rome. It, it fills into the latest date. I can then go in and add my tags, add my links. And a lot of that um, will be able to resurface in my weekly newsletter, um, which makes it writing it really easily. I think it's kind of similar to how Nat Eliason writes his medley. He did a YouTube video kind of documenting his process. So if anyone's kind of curious about um, how he goes about that um, or how I go about my writing process, it's basically that video. So I'd go encourage you to write it. But I, I do think like David's pr approach is pretty transformative, right? I think what we're taught in school is to uh, research after, do a lot of reading, take a lot of notes. Um, but we never really translate those notes directly to the essays that we're writing. Whereas David, that's his entire thing. Like your writing should be half complete by the time you start just by nature of doing a couple searches in your Evernote or Rome folders, seeing just grabbing all the related content you can putting it in a file and then, then restructuring it through that um, to kind of have an argument and then going out again after you already know kind of what your argument is, what your flow is and doing the research after you know what you want to actually write about. Cause then you're so much more efficient. Yeah. I think anyone from the outside would seem like this is just so complex and like, how do you have enough time in a day? It makes no sense, but I guess, like for me, I'm, I'm constantly consuming content. Usually it's podcasts or audible. So I don't know how to figure out my own little system with that. It's not as much textual. I would, I would have one recommendation for that. There's this new app called air audio and basically it allows you to create these things called air quotes. Um, so basically you, you're, when you're listening to the podcast and you hear kind of something you're interested in, um, there's like, you can click this button and basically kind of like the 30 seconds before and after the quote will be saved and a transcript will be generated and you can take a note on it. And recently air integrated with, with Readwise as well. I know this is getting super technical and not, probably none of your audience cares about this, but basically um, that can also then be synced to kind of whatever note taking app you're using. So I think air is super, super cool in, in what it's doing. Cause yeah, like before I would have no idea how to record stuff on the podcast. Cause I'm like, I'm listening on my phone. I don't want to like spend time on my phone, like typing away with my fingers. Like that takes so long. So yeah, I think air is pretty game changing then it's, it's very much new. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's one of those cases of you set up the system, sure. It'll take a day or two to really familiarize yourself and get it right. But once it's there, it's pretty much set in stone. And now since you're constantly consuming content, the repurposing comes so much more easily. Yeah. I, I've been playing with like, why aren't people learning in public and putting out content and doing what you're doing, what I'm trying to do myself? Like what, what's holding the general person back from that? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. Um, one is imposter syndrome. I think like, is this idea good enough? One is there's an inherent fear of, of the publishing button. I think these are both things that we talked about in Rite of Passage because it is very human to, to be like, oh, does anyone actually care? Um, and I think like you should, I think my advice for people is just like, look at people like me, I'm 19. I, I had no idea kind of what I was doing a couple months ago, still, still am figuring out, but people like the process, right? If you share kind of how you overcame certain things or if you share kind of like a success you had 
Um, a lot of people will resonate with that, right? Because they themselves are also trying to figure it out. Everyone is trying to figure it out. Everyone that you think is successful is also still trying to figure it out. Like that's kind of like one of Jack's tweets. He was just that, that really popped off because I think a lot of people like resonate with it is that everyone you look up to is, is still figuring it out, right? Like no, no one knows what they're doing in a sense. And, and that's what I think I would tell, tell people. That's, I think that's why it's so key because you get in with someone like Jack and now you're working hand in hand with him and you'll see some of the struggles that he might have. Maybe you've heard David, like I myself, uh, I get behind the curtains, like behind the scenes of some of what you think is so smooth. It's like, oh, it's chaos. Like no one really knows what's going on. Like it's all experimentation, figuring out the right direction to go. But when you do it publicly, people, I don't know, they can commiserate, they can empathize with, with your story and it's clearly connected with what you've done so far. Uh, I'm curious with, cause you have both, I guess the written form and the audio form. Is there a reason why you're not just tripling down say on just blog posts and Twitter and you, you want to branch off into the audio? Yeah. I, I think the podcast is one of my favorite things to do. Like I really enjoy just talking with people. I really, I think if anything, I, if I, if I were to double down on anything, it'd be the podcast. I'm thinking about scaling it to, to two episodes a week, but I think for me, I, I do like writing and I do really enjoy doing the newsletter and, and posting on the blog. But I think for me, and, and to be honest, like that is probably easier to scale, right? With SEO and things like that and, and Hacker News or there are all these different areas that, that can scale. But the podcast is just so interesting for me. Um, I think that it's, it's, I'm so lucky to be able to talk with a lot of people kind of I look up to or I think are doing really cool things and basically getting to pick their brain about like what they're doing and how they got started. Um, I know it's, it's, it's still very general, but that's just because I, I, the genuine only requirement for the podcast right now is, is if I'm interested, <laughs> if I'm interested in kind of like what they're doing. Yeah. I think, well, one, your, your podcast, you've had insane guests on already and it, it's just fun to, to listen to and hear diverse perspectives from students to people that are 10 years older than both of us that are doing crushing it in their world. Mm -hmm. And for me, I, I was trying to do a lot of the writing, but it felt like I was pulling teeth. Maybe it's the wrong niche. I'm not sure. Maybe you talked about it and write a passage more, but it just seemed like such an, a more effortful production process versus sitting and just talking to interesting people. Mm -hmm. um, do you think it's still worth it? Like, are you pushing through when you're writing or does it, you found the way to do it where it's fun for you? What, what's that actual process like for you? Yeah, I think there, there is like dips and there's, there are highs when it turns like sometimes writing is just super, super easy. And sometimes it's, it's really difficult. And I think that for me, I, I feel like I have a good balance right now where the newsletter has always been really easy to write for me because it is just my reflections on, on different things that, that came to mind this week. Like this week I talked about um, kind of Rome, Rome's three new announcements with its API, with its fund. And then I talked about um, uh, what it means to make, make your first dollars online. Uh, different the uh, I think this article called the four kinds of side hustles which I thought was, was really interesting yeah and so like as you can see there's not really a common thread that ties it together but it's just to me it's it's fun and interesting to write so I, I have no problem doing that and I do it kind of throughout the week so it's not kind of one big rush on Saturday night to get it out um, 
But yeah, I think that sometimes when I was writing my blog, it is pretty difficult, especially if you're trying to write a SEO kind of like uh, targeted blog post. It is, it is difficult sometimes, right? Because you're not necessarily super interested in it. Um, but I think like if you take the lessons of, of um, kind of what I just said and you have some of it pre-written and you kind of uh, emphasize the structure and the flow going in early, it becomes a lot easier. Um, I've definitely taken a short hiatus from writing as school started, but um, I think like the interest is still there in terms of, I think I have the, the, the groundwork laid out to be able to, to write in the future. I think that's what's nice about the blog is you're not like, oh, I'm publishing every Monday a new blog post is coming out. The newsletter, yes, there is that, but it's more fun for you. The podcast, okay. you have fun. I think that's so fundamental and like people emphasize the hustle, like the Gary Vee, like push through the pain sort of yeah. mentality. And like, if you're not having a blast doing it, you're not going to continue doing it. Yeah. So I think that's, that's why it's nice. You found the balance. What about Twitter? Does Twitter seem like fun for you or is it like, almost like you're clocking in when you're, I mean, now you're using a, a different tool, but you're putting out at least like 10 posts a day. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely still experimenting. I think Twitter is really, is really interesting. Um, I have no problems coming up with, with those 10 tweets a day. Cause I just feel like Twitter, especially right. Twitter should be kind of your sounding board. It should be kind of like you're writing in pencil before you're writing in pen. So it's really just for me, it's like seeing what ideas interest people and what people like hearing. Um, I, uh, I think a lot of Twitter as well as is commenting on other people's posts and, and trying to build off them because I think a lot of my best tweets come from like seeing someone else's post, commenting something and then refining that comment into another tweet hmm. because right. Like I think a lot of people are like, you just have to come up with everything yourself, but like you should use some of other people's kind of ideas to, to trigger your own ideas in a sense, right? Don't just view Twitter as, oh, I'm in this one field, this one set of people that I can look at, but try and bring in different ideas from, from different people. And that, that's what makes Twitter exciting. Right. I'm still learning the process. I'm super new to it, newer than you even. And having the list function, uh, I still need to explore, but you get diverse perspectives on everything. And then your job is just to remix kind of the ideas uh, with your own experiences, but I'm sure there are a lot of people that are like, Oh, you're only 19. Like, how can you tweet this much? Like, how do you know this much? Is it mostly just you consuming a lot of content? Yeah. I, diverse areas? Yeah. Yeah. I think like some of my favorite accounts on Twitter are, are the pseudonymous ones, right? I feel like they just have such in interesting thoughts like orange book or, um, uh, yeah, there's a couple other ones, but I feel like it's, it's really just like thinking about, what thoughts can make other people think like, I feel like at the end of the day, that's what people like uh, your post for retweet your post for. It's like, what made them think like, Oh, this is really cool. Or, Oh, this is something I'd want to share. Um, so yeah, I think it's Twitter's basically taught me a lot about like how people think. I feel like more than anything else. Yeah. It's, I mean, you're, you're just constantly peppering the world with little experiments and yeah. you're clearly finding the formula more or less. You're basically doubling your growth every month, it seems, if not more. But what do you think in terms of people doing Twitter wrong? Like what, what tweaks in general? Would it be commenting on people's, uh, like more popular people's posts more often? Or like, what, what did you do differently from most everyone else that tries to do well? Well, I think I, I also started out like not knowing uh, what to do at all. I would, all, I would definitely like just follow a bunch of people that 
were kind of pretty uh, spread out and distant. And uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. But I think that some of the my number one pieces of advice were is just to be consistent. Like I oftentimes when people ask me what to do, I just tell them to post at least once every day for 30 days. But then don't just stop there. Like you have to look back and see which one of you posted well. Was it a long thread? Was it just one singular sentence? What time of the day it was even, right? Um, kind of like who retweeted it first that that helped it blow up maybe. And then really doubling down on that and, and finding the formula for, for you and yourself, right? I'm still doing that. That's kind of why I tweet 10 times a day, right? I'm still trying to experiment like, oh, this this structure seems to be working. People like lists, maybe for me, that was kind of like a phase I went through. I I thought people really liked lists. Um, But yeah, it's just really about experimenting um, and and be pretty prolific and and don't care if it's, um, it doesn't have to be completely, completely like original thought, right? I think everyone on Twitter says this, right? Even the top, top people on Twitter, right? Everything is a, a, a remix in some, in some sense. It's not completely copy and pasted from somewhere else, but you can trace it back to, to what the original thought comes from. So I wouldn't worry too much about being like, oh, I have to be the first person that in, invents this, this new term. Obviously, you can remix something into it, but like, yeah, I just feel like people get too scared of being like, oh, um, there's a lot of people already that are saying this. Just try and put your own twist on things and, and, and people will, will come to you. With the podcast then, what was interesting to me, because you have this following of 6,000 plus, almost 7,000 followers there, would it make sense for you to maybe repurpose your podcast content there? Because I know you mentioned Instagram before. That kind of surprised me. I'm not sure what your following is on Instagram, but could could you take the format of just like summarizing your podcast or um, have you thought about that before instead of Instagram? Yeah, I think another thing is like a lot of people also just like summarize the podcast after I, I release it already. So sometimes I'm like uh, thinking about whether I should do it there, but I'm definitely thinking about posting more clips of the podcast on Twitter and things like that. But it has been a, an interesting kind of like balance. Um, I only kind of said Instagram because I feel like visually the podcast would do pretty well on Instagram. And I feel like, um, I think there is merit to, to building uh, uh, a following on Instagram as well. I, I haven't created an account there or anything yet, but yeah. that was just kind of like a future plan. But yeah, I think that that there's a balance there that, that needs to be looked at. We're actually, because we started on Instagram thinking that visually that's, that's the medium. Mm-hmm. And then one thing we noticed is Twitter is fantastic for sharing and retweeting. Right. And, and, and you can tag anyone you mention. So right. that's why we're moving away from Twitter. I mean, uh, Instagram, of course, Twitter. Um, and also YouTube. I know you're, you just hit a hundred plus subscribers there. So you're slowly working my way up. <laughs> you're hitting all the mediums. Uh, is that, is that the goal is really to, for this next say semester of the school year is to maybe do two podcasts a week. Like you said, if you can, or one at least plus the newsletter and the rest is focus on school. Yeah, that's pretty or much. Jack. Yeah. Um, I got a couple of things going on, but that, that is the general structure going forward. And I think it's, it's been really great. I would love, I read one of your posts and you talked about how you, you haven't found like that exciting idea. Like, uh, I think you said like Mark Zuckerberg finding Facebook before podcast, basically like mm-hmm. podcasting in general sucks. I know you just recommended, uh, I forget the name. It's Spanish sounding. Was it, 
Castro, mm-hmm. uh, Castro app. Like, I don't know. I feel like the podcasting, the technology there, just, there's so much work that needs to be done. Uh, I'm fascinated by why it's such a crappy medium in general for, uh, growing and, and spreading your word. Um, yeah, it's hard. The analytics are pretty hard. It's, it's hard to find growth there, but I think for me, uh, it's been, for me, like on the back end, it's been just pretty easy. I think I've gotten really pretty good at editing and um, kind of like how to structure the the show and things like that. So um, that for me has has been um, kind of like why I've decided to like double down on it. Um, it's just like been a, a enjoyable process, honestly. Like filming and editing each process, each each episode. Is it getting to the point where? you feel like you're, you're doing a lot of, I don't know if you have someone helping you at all. I feel like you mentioned it some time before, but are you doing it all yourself right now? Or what is your process like behind the scenes? I have a, a, a viewer that is also just helping me with video editing. Um, but yeah. And, and I have someone who helps me with kind of like my thumbnail designs for YouTube. But other than that, it's, it's very much just all me. Yeah, I think that's, that's why I love, like you look at even a Joe Rogan experience and it's just him and Jamie and like the, the amount of audience you can reach with a, a small team of people. Mm-hmm. Working, uh, it's, it's incredible. It's a great medium. Um, so your goal basically is to continue experimenting, kind of finding direction as you go. And maybe like the serendipity that David talks about a lot, that's going to come up in the next couple of years of of school or is there a different way you're approaching? Yeah, I think that that is, that is the goal. Um, and I think that it is, um, kind of like an effective model because like, yeah, I think what a lot of people on Twitter talk about is right. Increasing your surface area of serendipity. That means just putting more stuff out there. And I think that it it, it does work. Like, I think I I have around 6,000 followers, but I think like the people you reach, is way higher than that. I think you really, people really underestimate like how many eyeballs you get on, on your different. You've had, I I forget if it was this month, but 2 million plus impressions. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you, people really underestimate like where those impressions could be coming from. Like a lot of people I have on the guests, right. I have on the podcast, right. Um, when I like just intro to them or like when I'm just talking with them offline, they're like, Oh, I've been seeing you on Twitter a lot recently. (laughs) And like, these are like, people I would never have expected to be able to reach or talk to in the, the last couple of days. And, and that's kind of like why I think Twitter is, is, is so powerful. Like you, you never know who's going to see your stuff and be like, Oh, this, this guy seems pretty interesting. And doing that for longer and longer, it can only get better, right? You can only reach more people. You can only um, get in front of more people's eyes and that will increase the amount of opportunity and, and success that you have. Yeah. The, the beauty of compounding online and, and like those impressions, you don't know where they're coming from, but you have to assume some percentage is from some cool person that you look up to. And now like, it sounds like you're going to have James clear on the, the podcast who you look up to. You've had a, a series of amazing people. Is your process, do you think it's made much easier when someone will say like, oh, I, I recognize Brandon from his tweets when you DM them? Like, what does your process look like when you're getting these high caliber guests? Yeah, I think a lot of it is um, kind of through through what people have seen on Twitter. I think I was only able to um, get James Clear on the show because he followed me on Twitter. And that was the only reason I was able to DM him. Mm. And so 
I think in the future, I'm, I'm probably going to transition also away from solely contacting guests through Twitter. I think that there's a lot of really cool people in the world that, that aren't on Twitter and I'm, I'm going to have to like cold email and, and reach out to, but I think there is a lot of benefit in, in having, um, in, especially at the start, just reaching out on Twitter, because some, if, if your profile is optimized, if you have a couple of like cool, interesting tweets, instead of like having to send like a resume or something, they'll just look at your Twitter profile and they'll be like, Oh, this guy's pretty cool. Or like, Oh, this guy, um, I don't know what he's really about. So I might not do it, but like just doing it, just, just having that option instead has, has been really helpful. Yeah. What we've heard before, cause we always like preach having some sort of online portfolio and the easiest way in is, is generally Twitter. At least we've seen like, you don't have to set up a website and get hosting and figure out how to design it properly. I mean, you use square and it seemed like you got it up pretty quickly and it looks amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you say anyone right now listening, say they're in their twenties or whatever, yeah. what would you recommend? Like if they have no voice in the world right now, but want to, what should they do? Should they create a newsletter? Should they create Twitter, create a podcast, do all the above? What's been your experience and your advice there? Yeah, I think my advice is probably a compilation of, of a couple of guests I've had on the podcast, but I think definitely invest in, in one open platform and one own platform. So an open platform is something like a Twitter, something like an Instagram, something like a Facebook, where there is these algorithms that are already put in place that allow you to grow really fast and allow you to tap into these really huge audiences that are already on there. But the issue with open platforms is that, right, they're open, they're not owned by you. Um, If Twitter changes its algorithm, like you could lose the amount of reach that you have if they, for some reason, maybe they get get acquired or something. Like look what happened to TikTok, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, who knows what what those people are gonna transition into doing. And so what own platforms are is, is your newsletter, email lists, your, your websites and your podcasts. So, and I think I'd, I'd emphasize focusing on one. I think a mistake a lot of people make early and, and I definitely made early was that you try and grow on, on too many different platforms, right? You're on Reddit, you're on Twitter, you're on Instagram, but you're never really blowing up in, in one area. And that's kind of like the advice I took from Pomp. He preaches this all the time, right? He grew to a hundred thousand Twitter followers before he diversified to a newsletter and to a podcast. And he, and even then, before he launched his YouTube channel, he did his newsletter and he did his podcast for, for around a year or so before moving on. So I think like a lot of people just have to be patient with, with one platform um, for a while, stick to it, and then transition that to, to another. Do you think it, people should take uh, a course assuming like you have to factor in the funds. I, I don't know what say rite of passage is probably that like a good course is going to be 500 to a thousand these days. Is it worth just experimenting using the free tools? Maybe there's some good blog posts that you've seen or just listen to say the pump podcast with you or another one. Um, do people need the courses? Do you think it, it has the advantage? Like what, what's your opinion after doing them? Yeah, I think the courses is is a lot of the courses is you're paying for the community and you're paying for the, the live instruction, you're paying for the connections that you're going to make. Um, I would definitely say like if you were to invest in like a high ticket course, like write a passage or like 3,000, 4,000. Like, oh, yeah. is it that much now? Yeah, you have to dedicate the time to it, right? It's not something I wouldn't recommend taking it like if you're also like a full-time student or, or I mean, you could make it work. But 
like you really want to find time to, to emphasize that if you want to like have a ROI on it. Yeah. And I would say a lot of the information out there that, that kind of people use is, is free. I mean, as with most things on the internet, like you just have to know where to look. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say, yeah, like follow, just follow interesting people on Twitter. I think that, and, and look at who they're interacting with, who they're liking, who they follow and expand your network through that instead of like whatever Twitter suggests to you or whatever kind of you see other people retweeting. Like don't follow that. Follow the people that you look up to and who they also follow. I'm curious uh, because you're so invested in the online sphere and, and writing and everything. Is uh, And you're kind of big on the work-life balance. Do you feel like it's been too much work? Like do you think like at this point you, you want more life back or how is your balance currently? I think my balance is pretty good. I, I honestly think people, um, because they see like, for some reason, like a lot of people think I, I have, I'm like, I produce a lot and I honestly don't think that I think that I could almost be, be doing a lot more, but, but like you said, like there is still like the importance of, of right. Recognizing like tonight, I'm probably just going to go watch some football and, and watch Sunday night football and, and, and relax. But it, it is like um, whatever works for you, I feel like is most important. Some people need it more than others. But um, for me, it is pretty a pretty big priority to, to have balance in, in that sense. Yeah, I, it is funny how you do it. I mean, it, you've transitioned your, the, the way you schedule your days from having everything blocked off into, say, 30 or hour minutes to now having these flow states. I actually just listening to one of your episodes, I, I just bought deep work so I can finally listen to it. Mm -hmm. Newport. Uh, I think that's important. I know you, you, you're a fan of this question, but in terms of underrated books, mm. do you have maybe one or two that you typically recommend a lot? I think like my recommendations are always weird because they're not like immediately actionable. They're not, they're nothing like a deep work or like atomic habits where you're like, Oh, like that's, that's something that could probably help right away. I, I really like reading stuff. That's like, um, I think like David calls it like old books or not necessarily old in a sense, but like they're not kind of always talked about, right. It's not like the four hour work week. I mean, I've read those books, but it's not something I would recommend just because I feel like everyone has heard of them. So one thing I've been reading recently that I think is, is really interesting is, is this book called The Prize. It's about oil and kind of uh, how it's, it's changed throughout history. And um, kind of, it's, it's just so interesting. I, I'm really interested in history. So I read a lot of stuff like that. Oh, that's what was so funny to me because you thought international relations was going to be the, the topics that you touched on and, and like that was going to be your niche. And then you just get there, you experiment and you realize like, oh, I don't sound much different than everyone else. Yeah, no, it's, it's hard to write about that stuff. I think, it, well, it's good to have that. Like I have a history passion in the background, but I'm not necessarily the best historian. I don't want to do that, but I think you, you can sort of incorporate uh, a mix of everything and yeah. find your niche that way. Um, I know we'll, uh, a, a couple last questions, but for finding your niche, like, do you have is it mostly that iterative process or do you have a better process for going about figuring out where your, your tribe is online? Yeah. I think another thing, a lot of people are scared of like saying like, this is my niche and like doubling down on it. And I think that the, the importance is like a niche is not necessarily small, right? It's just an area of specialization, right? 
like the, my favorite analogy is from Steph Smith. Um, she recently wrote a book about doing content right. She leads um, the trends team at The Hustle um, and they're doing really well. Um, but yeah, what she says is basically like, like um, a niche, like Costco has a niche, right? Their niche is giving you everything for cheap, right? But they're kind of there. You, when you think of Costco, you don't think they're niche, right? Because they sell everything and anything. But that's just like, right? The analogy, it's like the lens you look at the world through. It's not kind of the area of the world you're in. So I would say that's that's the first kind of like mindset paradigm shift that I encourage people to, to think of, right? A niche is not like a, a hole you're digging yourself into. Um, and once you're in a niche, there's nothing wrong with with like experimenting outside of it. There's nothing wrong with, with leaving it for a couple of days. It's, it's, it's fully okay. Um, but yeah, if, if, if someone was like really like adamant, right? Like how, how do I find one? What, yeah, I would just recommend like, you have to really commit to, to, you have to produce, you have to act before you can actually know um, what it is. Cause like you said, I thought <laughs> I was going to write about international relations for a little bit, but very quickly after a couple of posts, I realized, no, this is not it. Um, so, and I, I got, I still have to find your Panama canal piece. <laughs> I, I love that stuff. So it'd be interesting. I think I actually own uh, the prize book too. Uh, I just haven't read it. So mm. I'll look into it. Lastly, uh, for people, underrated people on Twitter, do you have any, uh, like I know you got mentioned, I think in James Clear's post, cause you were one of the under 10 K at the time. Any other people that catch your attention? Yeah, I think I really like, um, I think Cullen, he's one of Cullen McGrath. He's one of the first people that, that like actually followed me on Twitter and reached out to me. He was, he reached out to me maybe when I had like a hundred followers <laughs> and he's been a, a close contact ever since. And I think that what he's been able to do is he's building this writing community, which I think is, is a really great um, kind of venture. And, and the group of people he has there is, is really great. So I would say, yeah, Cullen is, is definitely very, very underrated on Twitter. And, and he's usually, he has very interesting takes. So I, I would say that, that that's a good, good idea for people to follow. And I'll ask one last, uh, well, one, I'll, I'll look at Cullen too. I don't think I follow him. Selfish question with podcasting, uh, one, do you, when you have these guests, like, are you nervous for James Clear? How are you preparing for <laughs> someone like that? Uh, I don't, I, I don't think I'm nervous for, for James Clear because I think, especially, I think this is true for all the guests I invite on. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of each of these people and that's kind of why I reached out to them. So naturally, like I'm already, I feel like I'm super familiar with them, right? Like I took right of passage with David. So I was super comfortable with David, right? I've been listening. I had, um, I had Polina Marinova and Pompon. Like I watched lunch money all the time. I read kind of both of their newsletters and I think they're, they're really great. So I've kind of like have this already kind of like this understanding of what they're interested in and what they kind of talk like. And I've read Atomic Habits two times or so. So like, I, I feel like I'm very familiar with these topics and so kind of, I just go in and very much it's a conversational approach. I feel like I have a couple questions planned, but usually the second half of my podcast is completely freestyle. And, and I think that's the measure for me. That's a good podcast, right? If it's completely random and it's completely freestyle in the second half, I think the guests appreciate it too, because a lot of the guests that I invite on, like they've been on a bunch of podcasts already. So they don't really like saying the same stuff. 
Um, so I try like by the second half get to like really um, new, not new, but like stuff that they're not constantly talking about. Right. They don't go on autopilot and repeat their stock <laughs> answer. Yeah. I'm sure. All right. <clears throat> All right. I, I said last question before, but connected nope. question. Yeah. Do you say anything in particular when you're DMing? Cause I know you're big on the, the cold outreach or is it just like, Hey, I, I've had the pomp on. He's awesome. I, I love your stuff. I'd love to have you on. Is there anything specific that you do differently? I think like make everything super, super personal, right? Like reach out to people you're already really familiar with that you can feel like you're almost have like an inside joke with, or you can mention something that will make them say like, Oh, this guy like actually really reads my stuff and like knows like, and, and like has a reason for me to come on. Right. I, I generally try not to like name drop too many people. I sometimes if I'm like cold emailing someone and I know like they're friends with one another, like obviously, um, uh, I, I actually haven't done it that much recently, but I think like, yeah, like mostly just try and make it as, I know it's kind of cliche, but when I say personal, like really personal, like there should be like no template, like it should just be like, how much of this guy's stuff have you read that you can kind of synthesize and say like, Oh, this is what I want to talk about. Right. It, you should be a true fan of their work and then it's almost yeah. easy and they've seen you in the community before. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh-huh.